to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbele, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have two callers on the line. I believe the first is Bruce Samer. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Bruce. Here. <laughs> Good to speak to you. It's been quite some time. We have another caller on the line. It could be Gerald Dion. And it is. Hello, Gerald. Good to have you on the line once again. So, as you were both seasoned veterans, we have some news and notes, and then we'll get into this evening's topic with hopefully an EvoGrid update from Bruce as well. If folks would like to participate, the call-in number is 646-200-0640. The next episode in two weeks' time, November 28th, Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, the hobby of artificial life. We've talked about artificial life as a hobby, uh, kind of occasionally, but not actually talked about it explicitly with regards to what it is to be an artificial life hobbyist. So in two weeks' time, November 28th, 8 p.m. Pacific, the hobby of artificial life. So, Graytham related news, Graytham Silicon Valley. Before I start with that, actually, uh, Al Lundell and Adam Aramenko collected together a series of videos uh, which are now available on the Graytham site. I think they've collected nearly all of the videos. There was a question, Gerald. Did you actually video record the last Graytham Netherlands? There were a couple of video recordings. Um, let me see. I'm not sure. I, I, I attempted to, but it wasn't really uh, successful. I didn't have the... Um, I was uh, you know, I was busy worrying about my own uh, stuff, and I didn't really have the time to do it well. I did mention to Adam that you had audio recordings that you put out in your Darwin at Home podcast, which I thought was particularly good. Um, yeah, that was just a, a that was a collection of a couple of segments because uh, you know even the audio I wasn't uh, paying attention to recording it. Uh, there's not uh, it, it's you know it's lovely to have somebody like Al around who uh, who just uh, you know takes care of it all. Yes, indeed. So anyway, Graytham Silicon Valley, Tuesday, November 25th, uh, I believe at 7 p.m. at SRI International in Menlo Park, Building E, the Visitor's Lobby. And uh, the speaker this month will be, once again, Al Lundell with his latest news. I actually watched his last latest news clip on uh, the, the videos that he and Adam Aramenko collected together. And it was really nice to see uh, Scott Davis and Scott Schaefer and Zan Gill and uh, Sharon Minsook and a wide variety of folk actively kind of talking about various news items. So for folks who can't make it to Graytham Silicon Valley, I do recommend you checking out Alan Dahl's video, particularly his uh, his most recent news one, uh, because they covered a number of topics with a with an artificial life related spin on it. But the special speaker this week, uh, this month at Graytham Silicon Valley will be Sean O'Nallian, uh, who will outline some of his recent work on the foundations of biology and on meditation and consciousness. I don't think this would be a, a Graytham Boston related talk, Bruce. Do you know Sean at all? I, I don't. Uh, I'm looking forward to this, though. Certainly, certainly. I think uh, it'll be a, a wonderful. Uh, discussion. Folks can obviously see the Al's video of that following. And Al will also be doing me a very big favor because he will be recording uh, the folks who go to Graysum Silicon Valley with regards to the I Am Darwin project. Now, if folks are subscribed to this podcast, you've probably already received a video of me uh, with the Las Vegas skyline behind 
explaining what the I Am Darwin Project is all about. But for folks who are perhaps new to it or perhaps listening to the podcast for the first time, uh, Darwin will be celebrating, or we will be celebrating, Darwin's 200th birthday uh, in February next year. And in the discussions that I think Dick Gordon, Bruce and I and a few others were having with regards to the celebrations in London, I thought there was just a little element missing, and that was actually the uh, fact that uh, Darwin was the people scientist, and there were probably folks all over the world that could record a, a little YouTube video clip with regards to what Darwin meant to them specifically and get a wonderful kind of tapestry of faces explaining uh, how Darwin was important to various people's work and you know the, the things that Darwin uh, instilled uh, with regards to, in our case, obviously artificial life developers, obviously there are biologists. I'm interested in seeing if there are economists and various other folk uh, who've taken aspects of Darwin on board with their work. And I initially contacted a wide variety of people to see if they would uh, put together I Am Darwin videos, and I have a, a short list of names of people who have either been contacted or promised me videos in return. Um, our own Gerald de Jong on this call is, I think, still mincing ideas with regards to what will be in his I Am Darwin video. Is that right, Gerald? Of course. But you were beaten to the punch by uh, Jacob A. Tennyson, who, funnily enough, has never even heard a Biota podcast. He was part of the Darwin group on Facebook and saw my announcements and recorded the second I Am Darwin video on the site. So for folks who are interested, check out the podcasting page, biota.org slash podcast. I will include a link to the I Am Darwin project, and you'll be able to see Jacob's video there. And hopefully by the time you listen to this, there will be other folks who submit videos to the I Am Darwin site. I think this is a wonderful opportunity to do what Gerald has already done so successfully with regards to his promotion on Boing Boing and, and various other sites, is use video as the media uh, as a means to communicate what we do in artificial life. And Bruce, I think this is a beautiful then for you to talk a little bit about what's going on currently with EvoGrid, or as I like to think of it, myself, EvoGrid, the musical. Bruce, how's it all going? All right. Oh, it's going really well. Um, listeners to prior podcasts may recall that there's kind of two variations of the EvoGrid idea, uh, and it's primarily about creating a grid of evolution simulations. Uh, EvoGrid Broad was the initial idea, uh, which was to connect together existing artificial life simulations and allow them to exchange objects and environments and whatnot to make a richer uh, tapestry and a richer, uh, just a kind of a whole grid system that you could subscribe your environment to. And somewhat later, when I was writing the book chapter for Dick's book, the concept of Evil Grid Deep came in, which was uh, Dick's idea of, of the origin of artificial life, where you, you start from a, a basic particle soup or something with a physics, and you throw a lot of computing power at it, and you hope that self-emergence, uh, self-organizational phenomena exist, and it probably will. But you run it and run it and run it without putting your fingers into it and making, uh, trying to make things happen. And maybe uh, something akin to a, an origin of artificial life might occur and something more sophisticated than just organized uh, pixels will, will, will appear. And that's kind of a very, very long-term vision. Uh, so I actually 
made that the central core of my PhD research in in London. And in the first at the first stage of that, um, one of our uh, our well our, our animator here, Ryan Norcus, who's this wonderful guy in Australia, has worked with the team on all our NASA projects for seven or eight years. Uh, he's he's actually putting time in to make these movies, and I call it Evil Grid the movie, and it's about the deep concept, not the broad concept, but it really is a kind of a dream that I had about how do you communicate this in a whimsical way to the public? Um, you know, YouTube is the way you launch ideas, and a good computer animation is a really good base for it. So if you go to evogrid.org, that's E-V-O-G-R-I-D.org, and click on the movie link at the top, there's uh, the, two, the, the first draft of the movie and the latest draft is always there uh, on Google Video embedded there, and you can play it. And uh, Ryan tells me that Monday we'll have draft seven, and we're getting really close to my original scribbles and sketches that I did. And the Eagle movie actually shows uh, a way, it's very whimsical. It's not meant to be, you know, realistic. It's meant to communicate an idea. So it shows a cube underlain by little squares that represent uh, computing power, and then those squares double and double again. And in that cube is sort of a translucent uh, particle field that just self-organizes and you get in little entities appear and the entities have internal organs and one entity goes into a kind of a scanner and it's already digital so it's being actually just rendered down into record elements uh, and it's the chosen one. It gets transmitted to another little black box which is called an Acme Nanofab of some some wonderful nanofabricator in the future, and it has feeder tanks that have ammonium and, and carbon dioxide and whatnot going in. And out the end of the uh, Acme nanofab in a, in a thin glass pipette swims or is propelled the uh, chemical version of that, that digitally evolved entity, and it goes plop into a beaker and swims, so its machinery kicks into action because itself. I know I know how to run this algorithm and it swims off. And so that that's the long term view of um, of of artificial life, uh, uh, strong artificial life from the evil grid deep idea. And have you had a chance to see the video, Gerald? I saw the first one, yeah. The I, I'm not sure if it's the latest version. Uh, Bruce is suggesting here that there have been a number. I have I've only seen one, but uh, it was interesting. They seem to be progressively getting longer, Bruce, which I like a lot. They seem to be concentrating on various aspects, which, uh, I mean, do you, do you feel the, the final video will be about seven minutes long, or do you think it will be about four minutes long? I'm trying to keep it about four. Uh, I'd like to uh, get, you know, of course, you've contributed some music that we might be able to integrate. If I could get uh, somebody like uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum or... or, or uh, or Mr. Spock, I'd love to get a really cool narrator. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to get get it uh, narrated just yet, but it really should be three to four minutes. And there's there's two other versions of of the movie that are already storyboarded. One is uh, showing a kind of hypothetical asteroid uh, being modeled in the cube, and instead of swimming creatures. Uh, you would see crawly creatures emerge because they're being 
they're evolving digitally around this, this asteroid model, and the nanofab generates a little conveyor belt which plops one of the crawly creatures out into a rocket, a, a kind of a cartoon Wallace and Gromit rocket, and that takes the creature up to uh, the asteroid in space and plops it there, and it starts reproducing and lives happily on the asteroid. So that that's version two, uh, variant two of the movie, and uh, variant three is going to be called the God Detector, and uh, it's kind of inspired by some of the, the discussions uh, we had here on this podcast, and when Gerald uh, said that artificial life is a mirror back on us, and uh, so the God Detector version will have God coming up behind the cube and just really can't stand uh, the fact that there's no life emerging there, and and God uh, puts his fingers into the cube and, and makes a creature, gets it all going, and then a light bulb goes off on the top of the cube saying that God's been detected. So that, that kind of is a, an out, outgrowth of uh, my chapter in Dick's book, but it's, uh, it'll be the God, a real short version, very Monty Python-like, but the God detector version will try to get that done by December. And obviously Dawkins would be the ideal narrator for that one in particular. Ah, that's a good suggestion. And all of this is dedicated to Douglas Adams, the memory of Douglas Adams. Certainly. So between all of us, I'm sure we could get Dawkins to do the voiceover for that one. Gerald in particular. (laughs) So you've also been, in in parallel to all this rendering and and discussion, you've also been doing a, a kind of in part, uh, the Dick Gordon book tour, in part, an Evo grid tour. Can you talk a little bit about some of the places you've been? Yeah, it's been uh, a thrill. Uh, the first stop we had was in Padua, Italy, and I keynoted a conference called Presence, uh, which is the 11th annual uh, version of that conference. And I was really fortunate because they, it's, Possibly, I think it's the oldest university in Europe, or maybe maybe it and Bologna are the oldest in Europe, formed it in 12, 1222, and I did my talk in the Aula Magna, in what's known as the Piazza del Bo, and it's this massive hall uh, covered with plaques, and it's the plaques of great scientists and philosophers, mathematicians, um, and co- family coats of arms, and in the ceiling are frescoes, and one of them is a Galileo Galilei looking down at you. There's a crack going from one one chin up through his forehead, it's kind of interesting. And that's, that's the very room that Galileo uh, taught in. And after I did, I did a presentation on virtual worlds as a medium for presence, but the last section was about the evil grid. And there was, you could hear a pin drop at, at the end. There was no question. And prof, our professor, who, was, uh, who had organized the conference, came up to me later and said, don't worry, no one asks questions in this room. It is a property of this room that people stay silent. It doesn't matter. They want to ask a question, they won't. That's nothing uh, you're doing. So from there we so went to like, London. Is that, is that a, a property of the room, or is that a bit like being in the presence of the royal family when you can't ask them questions? I, I think the setting, this just the pure setting, because it's just crazy me in my cyber garments, and you know, it's just nutty me. So it certainly wasn't my presence; it was the presence of the space. 
Um, and the space is tightly controlled. You cannot go in there, and it's, it's very, very rigidly controlled. And they were very lucky, even though they're professors at university, they're lucky to get it, access to it for the for my talk. But um, so anyway, we we uh, trundled off to London after that, and I spoke at a virtual worlds conference and presented the EvoGrid work at the University of East London in the Smart Lab, which is the home for our PhD work for Galen and I. And it seemed to be accepted really well. I presented to the dean of the School of Engineering. He was quite excited about it. There's some grant possibilities uh, there. And uh, then we flew um, to Sarasota, Florida, to the design summit uh, that they have every year there. And it was the head designers for Google and Pininfarina and Herman Miller and Target stores and whatnot. And I presented virtual worlds again on the evil grid again and each time the, the movie was a little bit better uh, thanks to Ryan and uh, there it was talking about artificial life and evolution in the computer as a medium for design and that, that went over really well as well. Terrific and then you were in New Jersey did you do any meetings there or was that just decompress point? Actually in New Jersey I sat and was sick uh, after all that, that output but I consolidated uh, one of the things that I'm doing in parallel to explaining this idea around the world and promoting Dick's book, of course. I, I put cover shots of Dick's book everywhere, and I, I had the galley proof, and I was showing it to everybody I could. Um, but I also am doing in, in the head design of the actual architecture for an Evo Grid Deep, a prototype, because I have to actually deliver that as within about two to three years as the work, the PhD work. And Peter Newman, who's our other key developer for digital space for all the NASA work in Australia, he lives in Australia, is has written the digital spaces uh, engine, the open source engine, um, out of all these components. And what we're planning to do is to connect my original NERVS code that I wrote in 1994-95 as a starter for building a, big, a cheap and dirty physics, uh, a, phys a rich physics is what, one of the things I think that artificial life suffers from. A lot of the, the, the environments that I see is that the physics is it's very, very simplified. And I just have a feeling that physics is the key to the, the creation of complexity and complex systems and, and uh, evolution. And so what, what I'm trying to do, and I know Gerald will have a lot of ideas too, and so you, will you, Tom. I'm trying to create a cheap and dirty reality that is, is computable but has the properties of, of a fluid, a fluid that can have uh, fluid dynamics and hard and fluidic elements, so rock elements. Uh, it can have dissolving of hard to fluid it can have uh, a representation of large numbers, hundreds of thousands or millions or hundreds of millions of particles that are moving through this fluid, uh, properties between the particles, uh, contact, random contact between particles, and then the formation of, of particles in various patterns, strings or whatever, what have you. And all of this actually able to be run on multi-core machines or a grid of machines where you know 99.99% of the simulation is running as fast as it can, and there's only visualization when you look 
when you poke a, a 3D cube viewer into it, an observer function, um, and you actually have to clock down the simulation or because it, it's, it's not going to be viewable. And then the observer function, and this is something that came from Dick Gordon, the observer function has got to actually look for patterns. Um, Dick's big challenge on, on one of these calls, I remember, he's one of my PhD advisors, was you, how are you going to know uh, whether something is going on in there? And he's, a, he's worked on you know, early work on sort of amoeba, constructing amoebas from parts. I remember he was describing Professor Daniele in the late 60s doing this. He said, how are you going to know if, if something has happened? You need an observer function. And even if it's just looking at complex strings that are seem to be replicating or doing something, you have to, nothing's going to tell you unless you build a complex observer function. You can't just be humans trying to look into the soup because the soup's going to be too big to, to look in. So that's a challenge, and you guys probably have some ideas uh, about that. I remember that call distinctly because I think what emerged from that was the idea of the digital death certificate, that basically the, the growth and records, and I mean, obviously this is a problem with every artificial life simulation of any degree of complexity that has you know, more than one agent in it, that the, the, some simulations are interested in the lifespan of the agent, some simulations are interested in, you know, clustering and community properties of the agent. And I think um, what you say with regards to the viewer is, is already a, a pretty well-defined uh, problem with a, with a few quite curious solutions in artificial life already. I can um, hear folks who are listening to this podcast now kind of pausing and shouting, you know, the, their favorite um, iteration of this. So this is a, a relatively well-known quantity when you want to interrogate a, an artificial life simulation. But I think the idea of physics and particularly vast kind of particle physics where the particles can either be particles surrounded by fluid particles or particles that create lattices to be solids and these kind of things is, is very curious um, in terms of the, the kind of simulation um, that, that you want to be doing with the Evo grid. Gerald, what's your immediate thinking hearing all of this from Bruce? Well, the first thing I think of is, uh, is the idea of relationships because, um, you know, there's no such thing as a particle uh, on its own that, that's interesting. You've got to have a large number of particles and they've got to interact somehow. Um, so, you know, if, if there's, there's also, you know, if you have uh, virtual entities, there's, uh, I think I've talked about this before, but there's no automatic sense of proximity like there is in the real world. You know, if you if you uh, rub two atoms together in the real world, they all tend to react. You know, so there there's all sorts of things going on. But in the in the sort of simulated situation, you've got a, a you know a calculation machine that has to decide when the relationships are relevant and when they're not. And that's uh, that's where the the huge amount of work comes in. It's um, Particles mean nothing until they interact, and uh, when you have a lot of particles, even in a local area, the number of interactions is uh, is a lot more than the number of particles. I mean, it's, it's uh, if you've got uh, n particles, then the number of relationships is n times n plus one over two. So it it adds up really quickly. And if you imagine like uh, walking on the beach and thinking about one grain of sand. 
and then walking a little further and picking up another grain of sand, these two grains of sand will have very little to do with each other. So there are ways to optimize this uh, simulation to, you know, consider a number of relationships irrelevant. But it's also, I think, a lot of work to maintain, you know, to keep it tabs on what is, uh, you know, what what relationships can be ignored. And that's, it's, it's, just, it's a huge amount of work. Well, this is an interesting point, and certainly as Bruce was talking, what occurred to me with regards to the nature of artificial life simulations to date is that they have really been bound in the, the at whatever stage they've been developed, the contemporary processing of the time. I found this looking at uh, the Polyworld code in particular, is that there was a style of programming that Larry Yeager used in Polyworld that was very much of its time. Um, and certainly I guess Gerald can talk to this as well, but my experience with Noble Life is taking a simulation of kind of 20-year-old computing and progressively trying to tweak it and move it, and as Bruce is saying, to a certain extent add a degree of physics, but really now try to understand how to rewrite these kind of artificial life simulations for these massively parallel, you know, N-core processes, uh, you know, in machine network cluster kind of problems that we are uh, facing. Hardly problems, really. It just is, as Gerald is saying, a, a new way of writing simulations. And this is what excites me with the folk that gather on a occasional Friday evening basis to talk on Biota Live is that we all have parts of that puzzle. It's just a matter of getting our kind of collective knowledge together through, um, be it chapters in books like Dick's or chapters in textbooks like the uh, Maciej Komczynski uh, collection or future textbooks to try and explain all the various pieces. And I look at folks like Jamie Matthews and certainly a uh, shout out to, to Peter Newman as well in Australia who are taking uh, all of the bits of advice and ideas and trying to construct this future system uh, in a very dynamic way. Bruce, how do you see the problem uh, for folks such as Larry Yeager who are educators trying to bring up the, the next group of artificial life developers with these kind of challenges? Well, I think it's a big challenge and let me um, give you a couple of, of, of insights into the way I hope to do this project which will help. I'm, I'm hoping it will help uh, groups like Larry's classes which is that the EvoGrid grid project will be done completely in the open. I'm certainly a, a lot like uh, Fluidium and, and Darwin at Home with open code and movies, lots of movies explaining how the architecture works internally and hopefully attracting students and uh, critics from biology or from uh, synthetic biology chemistry uh, really open. In fact, uh, Peter Newman's going to be installing a wiki so I can finally get into the 20th, 20th century and start using <laughs> wikis. Um, you know, I just got to do it. I build these sites by hand and then it just gets out of, out of, out of control. Um, so I'm hoping to do it in the broad, broad daylight and, and then bring in all the voices that have come through Great Thumb and the Biota podcasts and, um, to critique the to critique the actual design itself, and to go back to Gerald, uh, Gerald really hit the nail on the head. And as far as the challenge of particles and, and particles and relationships and, and optimization, and I've been banging my head on the wall for a year on this. And I think that the original design that I had for nerves, which was code that I 
I built between the late 94 and mid 95 could be adapted for this. And it's basically a giant flow state network. So it's a giant Turing machine where the, the particles go through paths, distinct paths. They're not in free space. And the paths intersect, and the particles have chance meetings, and then the particles connect with each other and move along, in, maybe in a subsumption-type architecture. A couple of particles now is a different object, and it's at a slightly higher level of interaction. Certainly a ring of particles forming an interior and an exterior of a vesicle is another abstract entity. But this actually goes back to words I heard from Chris Langton um, at, at the Santa Fe Institute in the summer of 1994 when I was there on this initial quest, the initial biota quest. And he said, look, the best way to build any system, and this is they were building Swarm at the time, is like the old-fashioned batch programming, like the old-fashioned punch cards, just a giant loop of of almost identical operations going through with almost no indirections and, and jumps out to other functions. Make it as efficient as possible so you can get as much much through and, and, and represent as many entities as you can. If you're trying to do that game, just do a big go-to loop. So all of the design of this has striven for years to do just the big go-to loop to, to run as many particles and interactions as, as possible, and then decouple the visual engine, the, the, the 3D of the, the physics and the geography completely out of the simulation and let it be done by, say, Peter Newman in digital spaces or any other, any other observer function. Uh, but just don't get in the way of the computation. Certainly. I mean, I think the, the problem with the giant loop is that has been the paradigm to date with regards to artificial life development and certainly in the in the particle example, the way to decouple the particles, perhaps the nearest neighbor collections or these kind of things is the, the critical communication problem. And here again, uh, I'd like to echo what you were saying with regards to folks like Larry Yeager and every piece of assistance we can possibly give to these kind of folk is, is critical currently. I think um, people like John Klein have obviously led the way in terms of taking what was originally, I guess, in the case of Brevet, an academic project and then a hobbyist project, but certainly returning it to academia in some regard. Bruce, in terms of your time frame for the Evo grid, I, I noticed you said that you have kind of sat down and done some kind of divisions. Is there anything you want to say publicly in terms of your feelings about what the process will be in terms of time frames? Well, I actually, when I applied for the PhD program, they made me do just like the NASA projects we do to come up with a, a milestone schedules. So literally, and I, I'm, I'm probably overcommitted myself as usual, but certainly uh, by the end of the year, we're going to have the, the theme movies done, the website done to allow inclusion of, of different ideas and, and centralizing a lot of historical resources. And I'm going to go through during the rainy months a huge amount of, of reading and uh, try to pull together. I've got to do a big bibliography and a big history of this concept uh, back, you know, the Middle Ages and, and earlier, uh, so the alchemy concept. Um, but then by February, by Darwin Day in London, if we're back in London on February 12th, we may be doing 
an event. Rachel Armstrong is organizing, and for literally somewhere in London, a group of eminent presenters um, coming together to, to do an evening during the actual Darwin Day. Uh, I'm not sure she hasn't found the venue yet, uh, but by that time, I really want to have um, at least the original 1995 NERVS code running so that it's running helter-skelter and particles are moving around in the network, and then Peter's Digital Spaces is looking in and rendering a cube of, the, of that, showing the particles moving, clocked down. And that actually will be, so I can run the Evil Grid movie, show the concept, and then I can switch over to the live 3D uh, environment and say, and, by the way, this is only how far we've got. So we're looking into a live cube, and all that's happening is particles are bumping into each other and maybe connecting. Um, but that's all we've done. But that will have been, for a year, the first year, that will have been quite a, quite a progress. And then subsequently, for the, each sort of four- to six-month block of time, I really want to make as much progress as possible. I'm, I'm under no illusion that I could produce the actual vision of the Evo Grid in, in three years or even 30 years, but I really want to have the community input and all raise all the issues and attract a mathematician to do some of the basic math uh, showing how stupendously difficult this is going to be, uh, but really just just attacking and focusing on this vision from all angles. And so that by the time I'm ready to publish, I'm ready to write up, I can really write the entire thing up from so many perspectives, from, from sort of your perspective, from the perspective of a biologist or someone like, like Dick, uh, maybe Dawkins, if I can attract him into the project, get him to review the work, uh, artistic perspectives, uh, chemosynthesis perspectives, and so that the, the dissertation as published in a nice bound cover book may be a foundational element for, for, for doing this for real at some point where an institute is formed. And it's big science, so you'd need hundreds of millions of dollars. So, but that could be a foundational element for a future uh, big project. Terrific, terrific. And we all look forward to, to future EvoGrid updates and also, obviously, the chance to participate. There's an EvoGrid mailing list associated with Biota, so if folks are interested in communicating with Bruce and, and others that are involved in the project, go to the Biota site, biota.org, click on the mailing list link, and you will see the EvoGrid mailing list that you can subscribe to and participate in the discussions. So in large part, to facilitate uh, Gerald's son and his girlfriend's wonderful music, which will be played at the end of this podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the topic that was submitted, which is surviving an artificial life winter. And I thought this was an interesting topic because it came from the uh, you know, relatively bleak financial news and the sense that folks who had been moving towards developing artificial life startups and all these kind of vehicles, and certainly even a year ago I knew of three independent artificial life startups and I'm trying to maintain contact with them. I noticed um, Justin Lyon's Simudine site was down recently, but it could just be because he's in uh, Iraq currently. But anyway, the idea of an artificial life winter, if I can summarize it, is this notion that historically, and certainly this was the case leading up to about the Biota 3 conference, 
artificial life developers had a, a few um, high-profile uh, talking friends, folks such as uh, obviously uh, Richard Dawkins and Douglas Adams and these kind of folk who were talking very positively with regards to artificial life, but also there were a series of either independent or funded through uh, companies like uh, British Telecom and I think Sun had uh, various artificial life vends and these kind of things. And that all came to an end. And this is kind of described in the uh, winter discussions that certainly uh, Bruce and Gerald and uh, I remember Jeffrey Antrella was part of the conversation as well with regards to what occurred somewhere between kind of 2000 2001. And certainly the email correspondence that I've had and various other means of communication from folks in the community seem to be very concerned that all the hope and the momentum and the stuff that we've talked about in the Biota podcasts to date could all fall on its face now that potentially there is, um, you know, no investment capital and things like this. And I don't know whether I should start from my personal note or whether I should pass it to Bruce initially to give his impression with regards to the current situation. I mean, what do you think with regards to that narrative, Bruce? Well, certainly I remember it viscerally. I remember in, you know, we were we we had done Biota three, and Gerald had come for that uh, in San Jose, and it was it was a nice meeting. It was there was energy because there were game developers there, and there were two science fiction writers hosting us, and Tom Ray and and Math Engine and all that. And we've drawn out all that on the blackboard of of doing some kind of a almost like an early Evo Grid vision, or at least a portal for. A life developers to to show their wares, and then in 2000, you know, the next spring, the Nasdaq fell apart, and it, the, the whole gloom descended on Silicon Valley. All my friends, Jan Hauser left Sun, uh, stocks crashed, and I just you could just feel in your gut. I mean, it was just very depressing around here, and a lot of attendees out of the Digi Barn here, they were out of work, and they were permanently out of work. They were in their 50s and their entire job classification had gone away. So the same thing was, had happened to the avatar and virtual worlds medium. So I had sort of this double whammy. We were planning for doing Biota uh, 5 in Australia. Uh, we did Biota 4 uh, in 2001. Uh, Roy Plotnick hosted it at, uh, at the North American Paleontological Convention. But that was a very kind of low-key event. And, and Biota 5 was going to be at Shark Bay in Australia where we're going to return to our roots of doing an adventure conference uh, at the Hamlin Pool Stromatolite Colony. And uh, uh, Douglas Adams was very keen to go because he said, I, I will go scuba diving at Monkey Mia. And, of course, Douglas passed away. And that was kind of one of the early depressing things that, that really took the wind out of the sails. But then there was just no way to get corporate sponsorship after the uh, dot-com crash. It was pretty, it was severe, and uh, I, I, I sense that the, the downturn, this is not a dot-com crash, this is much larger, so it's, it's really hard to know where it goes. On the other hand, uh, the hobbyist, the dedicated hobbyist uh, who is underemployed may have more time to do work on, on artificial life, and the social networks are so strong now compared to 2000. And the mechanisms for collaborating and how information speeds through the networks and the tools are so much better uh, that, that we have a huge leg up for artificial life development. 
that we didn't have, in the, certainly in the early 90s when you need an SGI, or, or uh, in the late uh, 19th, uh, 20th century. Uh, Gerald, do you, what is your feeling about this? Well, you're definitely right on the, on the, on the, the point that we have amazing computer power in our hands relative to that period. So that's one thing that's, uh, that's a distinct advantage. And uh, I, um, I do freelance work here in Holland and uh, hang out with a bunch of freelancers. And uh, something I've heard from several of them is that uh, if the economy starts to turn down, well, one thing is that we'll all have time for our pet projects. And I mean, certainly that's been my experience, and I think yours as well. I mean, when I moved to the U.S., I, I wrote ApeScript, which was one of the last, you know, major code infusions into Noble Ape, aside from all the wide variety of Intel and Apple-related tweaks and various user-requested functionality. But in terms of major architecture changes, writing ApeScript was really facilitated by my move to the U.S. and, as, as you say, finding consultancy projects and then full-time employment. I mean, is that your sense with regards to Darwin at home too, Gerald? Uh, I don't know. In 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 some sense, I mean, you know, this is um, we've talked about this before. It's kind of a hobby, you know. It's it's uh, in, in a way, it can't die. There's there, you know, you'd have to uh, I'd have to lose my ability to write code before I would stop working on Darwin at home. So. Uh, you know, even whatever happens in the economy, whatever, you know, unless somebody takes my computer away, it's going to continue. I think this is a very interesting point, that the contemporary hobbyists are in a completely different realm. The thing that irritates me with regards to the narrative associated of, well, you'll have all these wonderful unemployed people will be working on their pet projects, is that uh, ultimately, and I think this is, if I, if I can talk about my own view with regards to this idea of, moving into an artificial life winter. I think we've been in an artificial life winter since 1999. I don't think any of the conditions have gotten to the point where a majority of the community could seek even part-time employment from developing artificial life-related applications. Was it the case before, uh, before 1999 that people could make, uh, you know, make their livings in artificial life? I'm not sure it's ever been the case. Well, my understanding is certainly that through uh, companies like Sun and British Telecom, where there was a, an active sense that the technology that would come out of artificial life would, would foster artificial life developers in some regard. And I think it's a pity we don't have Jeffrey on the, this call to talk more about that, because, I mean, I think Jeffrey's one of the few uh, recent examples who was able to... Uh, work at Linden Labs, at least initially, with the vision that his, you know, immense artificial life-related knowledge would directly benefit Linden Labs. So, I mean, I think that the kind of contemporary discussion with regards to Jeffrey and Linden Labs is the way I understand it was. I mean, certainly my own experience with regards to moving to the Bay Area was almost, well, I don't want to say almost all the projects I worked on, but certainly a majority of the projects that I was connected with had some component that was artificial life related. As an example, uh, I worked with a, a handheld toy startup, uh, and they had done absolutely nothing, as was <laughs> the case leading up to uh, you know 2000 2001. They had a wide variety of very high level ideas, but no one had actually written any code. I believe they had a, a little brick that you know ran some quick basic or something like that. 
So my background in artificial life there was simple. I wrote simulation code to look at the interactions of each of these handheld toys, work out how battles were going to take place, how evolution would happen, how, you know, they could exchange limbs, how practical these things were, and certainly... You know, my knowledge of artificial life-related stuff was very applicable there. I also worked with a company um, that was making uh, vastly networked games, uh, probably the you know something that went on to become something like Second Life in some regard. And there, my knowledge of artificial life was highly useful with regards to network optimization problems, the kind of things that we're uh, describing currently with regards to the Evo grid. I mean, I think the historical legacy is that period of time people were more receptive to actually taking subtle risks for very great rewards. And what happened after that period was an immense kind of conservatism which went into software development and very much moved it back to kind of black box technology which has really nothing to do with an artificial life narrative. So my own feeling is that we haven't had a day of sunshine since about 1999 in terms of being artificial life developers. And what I'm interested in doing very proactively uh, through, you know, things like Biota is strengthening the community to a point where we have a level of respect where we could be connected to something like Apple, as Larry Yeager was initially with regards to Polyworld or Sun or a wide variety of these other companies. I mean, Google springs to mind. Certainly my early interactions with Google seemed to indicate that they were relatively receptive to ideas of artificial life. And I talked to a number of folk at Google who had used Noble Ape and knew about Noble Ape. And, um, you know, certainly I could list a wide variety of artificial life projects. I believe yours as well, Gerald. And they knew about them. So, I mean, my sense is this could return. But the problem currently with artificial life, and I'm hoping that uh, I am Darwin will move this percolatus a little bit further up, is that unless you listen to things like the Biota podcast or you occasionally click on a Boeing Boeing link or things like that, it's very easy to believe that artificial life is dead, that artificial life died with the, you know, the winter when Dawkins stopped talking about it and, you know, when other folks stopped talking about it. And really we need to percolate just above that narrative. I mean, I think what Bruce is doing with the Evo grid has the potential to get a wide variety of very powerful thinkers re-energized and certainly a shout out to Dick Gordon as well because that's what he's doing with his book. Curiously, I'm in correspondence now with textbook authors who are starting to see folks such as Larry Yeager and uh, the folks in the UK that Jamie Matthews is a graduate of. I mean, these kind of people, there are artificial life courses that are coming up now and I think there's a need for textbooks, there's a need for the information that we hold with regards to actually, you know, on the academic end, if not the popular end, conveying the information that we hold. So, I mean, that's my feeling currently. I've I've kind of seen a way forward. Uh, When John Cumbers showed up at at the first full official uh, Great Thumb Silicon Valley Bay Area group to do his talk on synthetic biology, I realized that there's this incredible potential of merging of efforts because then John and I had lunch at NASA Ames where I was drawing out the first Evil Grid the movie uh, themes because I realized that this is a guy who's trying to think algorithmically about biochemistry and doing massive scale simulation can really help the synthetic biology field and of course they have their own their own algorithmic programming people trying to do that. There's someone working for Martin. There's a student working for Martin Hanschik, and I'm not sure I pronounced his name right, 
the protocells group in uh, in Denmark at the Flint uh, research group there, and they're trying to do because they're trying to create real bilipid lipid uh, protocells and get them to do things in real chemistry. They're actually they have a parallel programming effort. And Martin has told me, hold off for another month till the student finishes writing up a paper, and then we'll start to I'll start to collaborate with him and get some input from him and people like John Cumbers. And I think that what happens then is if if you're if you're really trying to make a low-level simulation that's kind of like a cheap and dirty chemistry, you start getting the interest of of large firms that are interested in pure research in this area. And then I'm hoping, uh, and also I have to point out also that, that Osher Yakhtar from, from SRI, there is an actual NSF grant uh, proposal that's due at the end of the month on doing a sort of synthetic biology. Um, and so that there are opportunities, and our NASA projects continue to support our little team, uh, and I've been able to do that for about 10 years now. Um, so it is possible to keep a group going. It's a lot of effort, uh, but it's possible to keep a group going consistently for years. So I think that all in all, I think if we can couple artificial life with some emerging powerful fields like synthetic biology or theoretical and synthetic biology and then go in to the grant writing process or maybe eventually it's part of a startup like uh, uh Mr. Gertzel's startup, um, I can't remember the name of it, uh, that does, does this kind of simulation of biological systems, then you, then you can start pulling in uh, large funding. Eventually, it may be that they just want a tool to help what they're doing, as it's no longer artificial life. But fields like ours that are very, very theoretical and very visionary often have to have off elements of themselves and, and align with sort of practical real real world or laboratory research in order to, to advance. And the same thing happened to the, the lofty ideals of artificial intelligence when it calved off computer vision in one aspect and expert systems in another aspect. The original concept of artificial life or artificial intelligence remained, but lots of people got lots of funding to work on some very narrow aspect of it. And in terms of the funding question, I mean, this is a kind of perennial biota life discussion point. But I think what you're describing is very interesting, and I don't want to disagree with, with what you're saying. But I think part of this is the idea that artificial life has some intrinsic benefit to a wide variety of fields. And the way in which we communicate that is, in some regard, a meta problem to curing the idea of the artificial life winter but I think it's critical that we need to be able to convey we have gathered together a body of work over a long period of time that has involved a wide variety of thinkers, a wide variety of books, a wide variety of ideas, and organically, as the name suggests, we have percolated these ideas and strengthened them in their own right, and this is the intrinsic benefit of what artificial life is. Certainly folks like Dick Gordon and Larry Yeager and people like that in academia are already leading the charge with regards to this. The Artificial Life Journal kind of moves in its own circles, but it seems to be doing this as well. I think the interesting point with regards to um, certainly what John Cumbers is doing and what others are doing in the kind of biological realm is, is important and will certainly lead aspects of artificial life forward, but there are other intrinsic benefits in artificial life development. Gerald, can you think of any that we haven't touched on? 
Well, it, uh, it's certainly a, a, a brand of computer challenge, which uh, which you know brings out the best in in some people to you know uh, rise to that challenge. It's um, uh, you know the unglamorous part of a, a simulation that you're talking about like this is uh, you, you're basically deciding which shortcuts to take. So uh, you know th- those are those are interesting computing challenges. Um, other than that. Uh, yeah, simulation of uh, of real life, uh, like uh, Stefan was doing, seems seems interesting. It's not exactly the uh, the soup idea uh, that that Bruce is talking about for the for the deep artificial life. But that uh, I don't know. That's uh, the what 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 kind of things uh, can we concretely point at? Well, I think this is interesting. If I can just take a step back from that, listeners may be curious why we spent two episodes talking about spiders particularly. And really through those two episodes, I wanted to illustrate a point that oftentimes what we read and the ideas that we have coming into simulations actually results in the simulations that we create. And I think as artificial life developers and particularly as we're looking to see where artificial life goes through our own development and the development of our peers, the directions and the interests and the readings we take are, are very important. I'm um, reflecting on the uh, Graytham Silicon Valley talk because certainly um, I also got an email which I forwarded on to uh, Bruce from Joseph Nexatel with regards to his discussion to the kind of popular art community about what we're currently you know, simmering in the biota community and how actually to convey this in a kind of cyberpunk narrative. So, I mean, I think we are only limited by what we read in some regard, Gerald. I mean, I think we can we can find ways of using artificial life methodology in a wide variety of problems. It's just a matter of isolating the problems and looking at how we apply the algorithms. Does that resonate with what you're saying? Well, in a way, um, the, the, the thing is, I think, you know, one one thing that was really interesting about uh, Conway's life, if you want to really go back to the beginning, is that it's not uh, a simulation of anything. You know, it's not, uh, there's, there's no physics involved. Cellular automata are really easy that way. You know, there's uh, are implicit relationships between nearby things. Uh, when you go beyond that, you're, you're doing shortcuts in some way or other. Um, so, you know, there's always arguments, uh, suggesting that it's not like real life because you're not using real atoms. Uh, if you go on a little further to the uh, the wet artificial life idea where you're actually trying to, uh, you know, do like Craig Venter or something like that, where you're actually making uh, artificial life out of uh, existing components that come from life, uh, that, that I think, you know, that then you have the advantage of... Uh, Computing with real atoms instead of uh, simulating things, so that that uh, is very exciting. I think that will eventually uh, be called artificial life, and and, uh, and and you know what we're doing is is better classified as simulation. Yes, it's very nineteenth century to think of real atoms in a kind of physics context. I think. In terms yeah, of but the way it it it, uh, it dovetails with what Bruce was talking about, about alchemy. Certainly, certainly. So to conclude the discussion with regards to the artificial life winter, I think like many discussions on biota life, we probably have left no conclusions by the fact that the way we approach the problem will ultimately give us the uh, the solution. Bruce, is that your sense listening to this discussion? 
Yeah, and I think all you can do, and with what I'm trying to do with the Evo Grid, is just put a, a singularly powerful idea out, the idea of artificial life, in in a new way, in in, in this YouTube movies, in talks, uh, trying to make it relevant, and put the idea out and try to excite a new generation to work on it uh, and get the grants and to keep it going. And I think that that's what I'm trying to come out of the starting gate with on this PhD work. And I'm hoping that it uh, bridges over any winter and maybe gives us gives a whole new burst of energy to, to people who want to contribute. And speaking of the next generation, as this is a family-oriented podcast, I'd like to allow Gerald... Well, firstly, I'd like to thank Gerald and Bruce for participating in this evening's discussion. Uh, the topic... Let me just bring up my show notes, I'm sorry. The topic on November 28th, Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, the hobby of artificial life. Uh, per previous podcast, we are in the process of moving, so this may take a few days to get out. But, Gerald, somewhat... I mean, I don't think the simulation ever kids with regards to these kind of things. I was walking home maybe a week ago, humming Black Hole Sun. I kind of tapped it into my phone, into Twitter, and lo and behold, your son had just recorded Black Hole Sun. Would you like to give an introduction to it? Yeah, what they uh, they did was they produced a CD from his uh, high school, if you want to call it that. It's, it's actually a gymnasium, which means that it's... Uh, they, they study, uh, for example, old languages. Uh, he, he studied six languages at school, including Latin and Greek. And uh, the school he goes to has now been uh, in existence for 680 years. So uh, to celebrate that, they, uh, they produced a CD with uh, talent from uh, students uh, at the show and, uh, or at the, at the school. And this was a recording made by Mitchell and his uh, girlfriend, Josephine, and uh, they are uh, they they're they're always uh, busy with music. They've now actually got a, a, a bassist and a drummer, so they're they're actually forming a real band now. Yes, I'll, I'll probably is... include one of your YouTube clips as well because Fiend, I mean, she has that kind of rock star straight face as she's doing all this passionate singing. It's quite impressive, as you'll shortly hear by a live listener. So, Gerald, would you like to give some short radio style introduction? First of all, I'd like to say the uh, the YouTube videos are doubtful because she keeps asking me to take them down. <laughs> so they, might, oh, no. <laughs> they might not be up for long, but uh, okay. Well, the yeah, the introduction. It's uh, this is this is my son Mitchell and uh, Josephine doing uh, the Black Hole Sun from uh, from Soundgarden. In my eyes, indisposed, in disguises no one knows, hides the face, lies a snake, and the sun in my disgrace. Boiling heat, summer stench, neath the black the sky looks dead, call my name through the cream. Scream again Black hole sun Won't you come And wash away 
You come. 